0: Hey, friends, Joe here. And if you like our Boss Better Now podcast, then you should also be getting my twice a month Boss Better emails. Every other Monday, I'll send you a simple note with advice, encouragement, and resources to help you boss better. Just text the word Boss Hero to 66866 to get signed up. That's Boss Hero, all one word, to 66866. Or you can visit BossBetternOw.com to subscribe. Now, on the show. At a time when finding and keeping employees is harder than ever before, more and more teams are gritting their teeth and putting up with toxic team members rather than firing them. Is that a good idea? And how do you deal with the toxic behavior when you can't ultimately show them the door? Plus, it's time to stop repeating a popular leadership mantra that is all wrong. It's all ahead now on Boss Better Now.
1: you're listening to boss better now please welcome speaker author and pistachio nut joe mall (laughs)
0: greetings boss heroes and thank you for joining us here on the podcast a show that aspires to be food for your boss soul and as we like to say is driven by the questions you ask about leading teams and supporting people that voice you heard a moment ago is my fabulous co-host, professional coach, Alyssa Mullet. I am <laughs> applauding you for getting through that pistachio nut line without laughing.
1: I, I feel like I didn't do the inflection correctly. I did not <laughs> signify the Oxford comma because I it kind of sounded like pistachio, like it is a form of who you are, like you are a pistachio nut. You are not, in fact... <laughs> a pistachio nut I'm assuming you are nuts about pistachios specifically
0: Yes that is exactly why that is there I was I was playing and being clever with pistachio fan no pistachio nut. See nut. what I did there? Yes, it's a terrible dad joke, but I'm gonna own it. Um <laughs> no, I, I have I have been a, a little bit crazy for pistachios lately, and I have feel I'm feeling like they are the near nearly perfect snack. Um uh, they're they're like low in carbs and sugar and they are higher in protein and I like a crunchy snack and like, yeah. if you're watching a movie and you're shelling them, it slows you down like you're not just shoveling stuff in your face. And as long as you go with like the lightly salted, you can't go with the full-blown salted because of the sodium and all that.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think
0: they're very nearly the perfect snack and I am, wait for it, nuts about them. <laughs>
1: I actually, I got, I was, I went through my own pistachio loving phase as well, but I had to stop because my my fingers,
0: (laughs) yes, I really
1: hurt, (laughs) and and I didn't want to switch over to the you know already shelled thing because number one, that's really more expensive, and number two, I was gonna be just that's right shoveling that in right there, and that's. Mod- that's not the key to moderation right there. For and,
0: me. and i've I've <laughs> seen them in the store where there's the bag full of the ones that are already shelled. And there's a part of me that, like, feels like that's just embracing your full lazy. It feels like <laughs> I'm just it shouldn't be part of the deal. yeah. and and for the same reason, they're they're pricier, and I, I would be just shoveling them in by the handful. And so, yeah. but the yeah, the shelling can be tricky because you kind of have to use a little bit of fingernail there. And more than once, I've kind of gotten, like sliced under the fingernail, and oh, that's the worst.
1: And then you get that nice salt in there. Mm. Oh,
0: yeah, no, no, no good.
1: I was just talking about why pistachios are a
0: great snack, and now we went the other direction. We're like, they're so dangerous, and they cause you tremendous pain.
1: Stay away. We don't want any supply chain issues with the pistachios, so you know we got to balance it out.
0: Well, we're going to start this week, Alyssa, um, with a, a question and a problem that has come to me in a, in a couple different ways. I've gotten some emails about this. I've gotten asked about this in some of our various live workshops and with clients, uh, and it's really about what we heard sort of at the at the lead of this episode. With so many organizations struggling with staffing issues right now, folks tend to be even more resistant to letting people go, uh, and so I've gotten some version of this question again and again of late. I've got somebody on my team who is toxic, really challenging, is difficult. And mm-hmm. in a different landscape, we probably would be ready to say goodbye to this person. Or, we would, mm-hmm. or I would be making a case to people higher up on the org chart who have the power to approve my firing to say, hey, I need to move this person out the door. But the nature of staffing right now is such where there's no way they would get that approved or it actually creates a harder problem. I had one manager reach out to me recently who said that in, in, at this moment, she is her performance is being graded almost entirely on retention, and it doesn't matter if they're bad. She said even if it's addition by subtraction, it's a ding against her as a manager in the eyes of the organization. But she still has toxic behavior to deal with. And so the question comes down to this. If I'm on a team and there's a toxic person there and they're not going anywhere, I have to continue to live with them for the foreseeable future. What do I do as a leader?
1: Hmm.
0: Where do you want to start?
1: Oh, my gosh. I feel that pain. Like, you know, there's like truly damned if you do, damned if you don't, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that – feels like rock and a hard place all at one time. And I, I think that um, where you put your energy <laughs> depends on a lot of times where the toxicity is being experienced the most. Mm-hmm. Like, is it toxic in the capacity that the behavior is? is cumbersome for you as the leader to manage or is it more toxic environmentally to the other staff members, the other team members? Um, Because if you truly can't get rid of them, which I I, I get it. A part of me really truly does get it. The other part of me is like, This is a bigger, bigger, bigger Mm -hmm. problem Mm -hmm. because if it is infecting the rest of everyone, you're going to be having those folks leave, That's right? right? So you're you're exiting the folks that you want to keep because you can't get rid of this one person. Um, But I think trying to go at it first from where – do I need to put my energy in terms of managing this toxicity Toxicity uh, gives me a starting point? Is it mm-hmm. myself, my energy levels, or is it the environmental team aspect of things?
0: It's a great point. And I also appreciate your point right out of the gate here about how this is not a um, keep them and just continue suffering as we are kind of debate – Uh, The the analogy that popped into my head is like driving with a flat tire, right? If you get a flat tire and you keep driving on a flat tire, um, you don't just have to deal with the flat tire. If you continue driving on a flat tire, you actually ruin the rim. Mm -hmm. And so now this other part that would have been fine if you would have just stopped, gotten rid of the bad tire and put a new tire on. Now this other part that is more expensive and even more important for your ability to keep going – is damaged. And so, yeah, when when you have a toxic person on your team, accepting that they have to stay is uh, a a tacit choice to continue inflicting damage on others who have probably at this point proven themselves even more valuable than this person. Mm And so – I think I think a lot of our folks know and understand that at this point, listening to this, yeah. um, and so I think that your other point about you know where is the the biggest impact taking place, where is the biggest pain taking place, uh, and trying to zero in on that, I think that for any leader who is in this situation where they're stuck with someone who is toxic, there is, especially if you've been managing it for a long time. Uh, there is the temptation to just throw up your hands and say, forget it. I'm just going to ignore them and avoid them and work around them. And I actually think that is as harmful a a path forward as there is. I think first and foremost, we as a leader have to not let them off the hook. We have to Hmm. still address the problematic behavior. We still have to hold them accountable. We can never allow them to become comfortable with their acting out. The The trouble is it will feel like you don't have any teeth. Like, you have to stop doing this or what? I'm not going to fire you. I'm going to continue asking you to work these extra shifts because we're getting killed. You know, that's (laughs) – it doesn't feel like that there's anything behind you. But remember, the conversation is a consequence, You know, At some point, people get sick and tired of their boss pulling them in their office and saying, we need to talk about this. This is still a problem. This still can't change. And so we find the teeth in other places. And maybe the teeth is that the the annual performance review they get later in the year is going to be lower or the merit raise that they might get later in the year is going to be a little bit lower or uh, the flexibility and the preferences that you – give them in scheduling days off or, or rotations or shifts, they don't get their pick as much anymore because they're not adapting in the way you've asked them to adapt. So you find the teeth in other places, but never lose sight of the fact that the uncomfortable conversation that the boss still insists on having every single time this person acts out is still part of the pain that they have to experience to maybe consider changing.
1: Hmm. Few key words that stuck out for me were this avoidance versus accountability. Yeah, right. And sometimes, you know, all of us are feeling that drain of I can't do this one more day. I can't, you know, like mm-hmm. the burn from all of that continual managing of that behavior is is a real thing. Um, but again, then you. As the leader, become the one that's inflicting the suffering mm-hmm. upon everyone else by not holding that person continually accountable um, and your point about finding the authority that you need um, in ways other than the job goes away right. is really important um those things like flexibility and merit review and um all of those other kind of package of what makes it a nice, fun workplace, that, that's no longer part of your package for mm-hmm. that individual because they're being held accountable for their actions.
0: Yeah. It, <laughs> we talk a lot about parenting on the podcast, and my, <laughs> my kids and I have a word that we use around the house a lot called Privileges. Like, listen, ah. we're, we're, we're moving in a direction where if this doesn't get fixed, you're going to start to lose some privileges. And, you know, there are certain things that they think are rights that are actually privileges that we can take away if things don't improve. And, I, and so I think that's the model here. And we have to identify what those privileges are. And here's the other side of that too, Alyssa, is that accountability doesn't just have to come from the direct supervisor. You have allies, boss heroes. Uh, the one woman who reached out to me recently was the practice manager for a a family clinic, she's got doctors who work there. And so she may need to sit down with her physicians and say, I need your help. I, I need you to address this when you see it. I need you to pull this person in and have a a more direct conversation. I need her to understand this is not a me versus her issue. This is a her versus the standard that we have here for how we expect people to conduct themselves. And I need you to enforce that standard. And I, I need you to be very obviously on the side of that standard, which I am trying to enforce through the conversations that we're having. And then the other line of accountability that you can create is among their peers. Right? If you've done any team building, any work around uh, some of the things we've talked about here on the podcast before about healthy conflict and asking people to, to carefully confront each other when people are showing up in a way that other people don't like, I am sure that if this person is, who is toxic is showing up in a way that is problematic for others, that others are probably coming to you too, boss, and saying, oh, so-and-so is at it again and this is driving me nuts and how are we going to fix this? You know, at some point, you as the boss might have to say, listen, I can't do this alone. And I've had many conversations with her about it. And at this point, I need your help. Like, you gotta speak up too. You you she is not responding to me because there's no cost to her at this point. But if she starts to see that this is costing her the support of her peers and and flexibility with, you know, no people are gonna stop. Switching shifts with her or being willing to accommodate her requests on the job if they see her as intractable on some certain things. You know, if, if we decide that our culture is the way we do things around here and when this person acts out, a peer speaks up and says, hey, that's not okay, that's mm-hmm. another form of accountability that has to be in place. So, you ha- so So figure out who your allies are, folks, and start to try to ask them to speak up in the face of the problematic behavior as well.
1: Creating that consensus of accountability, um, I think can go a long way to also replace and replenish your own energy level <laughs> about mm-hmm. managing this kind of continual toxicity. So absolutely look for this, for the support um, and you know, I know from experience, sometimes that can be difficult, um, because, um, they may want to, in the case of, you know, the, the, uh, practitioner's office, they may want to hold the rule, but mm-hmm. then make sure the manager is the one that's it's the bad guy. The res- that, yeah. That's right. Cause that's a real <laughs> nice place for them to be. Yes, it is. Nobody else has to be that way. Mm-hmm. Um. And in that particular case, you have to make sure that they understand and feel the pain Mm -hmm. of that person's actions. Um, And whether that is spelling it out for them, if we cannot continue to hold this person accountable, i.e. you hold this person accountable alongside me, X, Y, and Z and Joe and Betty over here are going to quit. Yes.
0: Yes. Or you create line of sight between the thing that that other leader cares about the most and the bad behavior. So if what that person hates the most is the schedule falling behind in the clinic that day, then you say, you understand that when this person acts out in this way, it just sucks the life out of everybody else on the team and everybody slows down and it's not a conscious choice. But if, if you're experiencing things at work that are just killing morale, i.e. this person's behavior, nobody has any giddy up in their step. So if you want people to stay on time, then we need to hold this person accountable and you, you connect those dots.
1: Yes. Yes. Exactly. Very clearly. That's a big, big dot. Dot.
0: Dot. 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 You know, and and this other part about holding this person accountable when we have our conversations with that person, uh, when we're not letting them off the hook, those should be coaching conversations. We have to coach them to see how the negative behavior is affecting them. It's it's really easy for a leader to sit across from someone and say, "Hey, I am." concerned about this behavior because it's causing X, Y, Z pain. And what ends up coming out are the reasons it's a problem for me, or maybe it's a problem for our customers, or maybe it's a problem for other people on the team. But we need to create line of sight between the behavior and ways it is doing harm to them. And so some of those things that we talked about a minute ago, like, have you seen what this is costing you in the eyes of your peers? Uh, Mm -hmm. Do you understand the impact that it's having on your ability to operate here and get what you want in terms of your schedule, your availability, your support, connecting those dots. And as part of that conversation, too, we need to be clear and specific about what the behavior is that is a a problem for us. We've talked before about the difference between behavior-based feedback and subjective descriptors, right? You can't talk with this person and, and continue to ask them to stop being so negative with everybody on the team because negative is this squishy, ambiguous term. We instead have to talk about how... Hey, at the meeting when, when so-and-so offered a suggestion, you rolled your eyes and sighed, and it just it sucked the life out of the room, and that's a problem. And so we have to be clear and specific about the behavior that's a problem that we want to address, and we have to talk about it in that specific kind of a way, and then we need to coach them on the cost that it's having.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Great points.
0: And you know what? Here's the other part of this too, Alyssa. At some point, if you're stuck with a toxic person, we, you could probably make a list of a dozen things that this person says and does that are a problem. And if you're continuing – if you have to continue to operate, you may have to pick your battles. You may have to sit down at the end of the day when you've just had enough and write out every single thing that this person does that drives you nuts. And then I would advise you to do this. What's the one or two things that are the most important for you to address? What are the one or two things that are driving you the most nuts? Pick those. That becomes the accountability, and you let everything else go. You may have to pick your battles and zero in on one or two things that you want to change instead of the whole bucket of awful that this person brings into the workplace. (laughs)
1: You know, whatever you said about a list, uh, instantaneously I don't know why. Um, <laughs> I've pictured oh, you make a list and then you—he's going to say you. St- you light it on fire or – and then, then I was like, no, no, no. You you tape it to one of those fax machines like an office space and then you take the fax machine out in the big field and you just hammer the heck out of it.
0: <laughs> well, listen, if if ceremonial violence is what gets you through the day, then, you know, you may have to do that. I would say let's make sure we're doing that out of sight of others uh, <laughs> who may question yeah. our our sanity. Um And, you know, here's the other angle, too. You catch more flies with honey than you do with I don't remember the rest of that phrase.
1: Vinegar?
0: Is it it vinegar? Vinegar? Okay, that makes sense. I don't
1: know. (laughs) I'm assuming.
0: For as much as we have to hold this person accountable, the other side of that, too, is that there should still be, when we can, praise and thank you when we can. So that when this person interacts with us, it is not just entirely about the difficulty they bring to the team. Uh, no person is either either all good or all bad. If, if you've got someone who is toxic and you can find the one or two things that they do that are of value or that that actually are helpful, and you can shine a light on those, it may help Continue to build trust and strengthen and at least preserve the relationship that you need to be able to have with them as their supervisor, even if they continue acting out. If you can notice the good and name it, it's like a little deposit into the piggy bank of relationship capital that you need to have so that you can periodically pull them in and say, "Hey, listen, you did some great things last week, but then this other thing showed up again and that is not okay and it has to stop." You know, otherwise if every conversation is bad, that person just tunes you out. Yep. Agreed. And all the while <laughs> all the while you are still documenting everything, boss heroes, oh, yeah. because there is going to come a time when you are in a position to say, "Hey, You know how we sort of lived with all of this and had 37 conversations about it? It's because we weren't just not in a position to – move on and figure out what our next steps are, but we are now. And so we've made the decision that you can't continue here anymore. You're going to get the chance to do that sometime, folks. So don't stop documenting. Don't stop keeping that HR paper trail. Um, You're going to need all of those examples and dates and times and specifics for when the time comes where you can finally have your ceremonial celebration (laughs) for this person moving on.
1: Dream and envision.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. Well, I don't know what uh, other folks out there are enduring right now around some of these things, but I think this is pretty common. Uh, What else is common, folks? What topics or questions are you facing right now in your role as a boss? What is your biggest challenge? We want you to email us at bossbetternow at gmail.com. Your questions drive our show. And if you send us a good one, we might just send you some Boss Hero swag in the mail. So once again, to submit a question or a topic idea, just email us at bossbetternow at gmail.com. Our camaraderie question of the week this week, Alyssa, is a callback to a question we asked just a couple of episodes ago. We do a camaraderie question of the week on the podcast every week because bosses build camaraderie on teams by making it easier for people to find things in common with each other. So we give you a question you could take to meetings and Zoom conversations and huddles to facilitate connection and build camaraderie. And our question this week is as follows. What is something you don't enjoy doing but are good at. Now, do you remember a few weeks ago, I told you we had a camaraderie question where my son Miles asked, uh, what is something you're not good at, but enjoy doing anyway? And We we had a whole conversation about chess and things like that. And so we were talking about that the other night. I said, hey, I, I used your question on my podcast. And he was like, oh, that's cool. And then he asked the opposite. He said, well, what is something you don't enjoy doing, but you are good at? And I was like, man... Thanks for feeding the show, buddy. Exactly. <laughs> to use that question. We,
1: should, we better hire that kid.
0: We should give him a cut of uh, our profits. Wait, we don't have profits. We do this for oh free. Oh, yeah, that. So, hey, buddy, we're going to give you 20% of zero.
1: <laughs> do that math.
0: Do that math, buddy. <laughs> All right. So, Alyssa, that's your question. What is something you don't enjoy doing, but you are good at?
1: You know what's hilarious is I I, I – I took great pleasure in realizing this actually, I don't do a damn thing I don't enjoy anymore. I just, I just don't do it. Okay. <laughs> I just don't freaking do it. Um, So there, there is that like a sense of pride in myself that like, once I figure out I don't like something or I don't enjoy it, I don't, I don't put forth my effort to do it. Yeah. Um, That said, probably if I look back, Um, and this is professionally, if I look back professionally, one of the aspects outside of recruiting, we said we ain't doing that ever (laughs) again, but, um, that, uh, of what I have done is public speaking. Okay. Okay. Which probably, um, would floor a couple of people, um, because, you know, in my, in my past life, I was responsible <laughs> for like, you know, doing this whole song and dance of physician orientation. And I would get up with the the new residents in front of 500 of them at a time and I literally sing and dance at some points <laughs> about benefits and the whole shebang. Um,
0: and boy, folks, if you're going to try to dress up a conversation about benefits, <laughs> singing and dancing can certainly make it memorable. But go on. <laughs>
1: <laughs> hey, they let's remembered. talk
0: about your 401k <laughs>
1: <laughs> Oh, they're like mullet like the haircut with an extra t yeah okay then the, they remembered to call my office because of that like I, any in any case like uh, it make me sweat profusely and make my heart race and all the things right mm-hmm. and i would get so anxious about it i would get a real high, you know, mm-hmm. afterwards um, from doing it. But all of that leading up to, you know, the half hour, 45 minutes of being on stage, I did not enjoy that process of preparing myself, my body, my brain to do all of that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I can appreciate that very, very much. I, I, have a similar answer, not in terms of the the answer itself, but in terms of what I experience when doing my answer. Uh, So the thing that I do not enjoy doing but that I am good at are like conflict resolution staff development retreats. So for years, I would get calls from teams who would say, we, we have a lot of infighting, we have a lot of conflict, uh, we have a lot of people who are you know taking their stress and strain out on each other and we just can't seem to fix it. And I would ultimately suggest and create for them a kind of staff development retreat where we would set a goal of trying to go right at some of the discord that was taking place on the team. And I was good at it. I mean, you know, I have a handful of gifts. We all do. There are a lot of things I am not good at. But this was something that I did pretty well where I could go in and create an experience uh, where by the end, people had really gotten at some of the problems that were living under the surface and were looking at some of their peers in a different way and had made some promises, some commitments to showing up in a different way. But it is an extraordinarily taxing experience. As a facilitator, um, it is first of all you have to do a lot of work on the front end to create a safe environment for those kinds of conversations to happen. Um, you, I would internalize all of this angst and difficulty that people were having, and then put this immense pressure on myself to create some kind of profound experience that mm-hmm. would really. I, I was holding myself to almost a perfectionist standard, and. I would go in and I would do these events that were sometimes, you know, 6-7 hours long and it was like running two marathons. Now I've never run a half a marathon. So what do I know about running two? But <laughs> I just I mean I would be I would just be wiped for days afterwards. And yeah. I realized that every time I was finding myself in a conversation with an organization about doing one of these, I was Doing everything I could to avoid suggesting it and to avoid saying, OK, like and at one point we were charging a lot for them and people would say, OK, and I'd be like, oh, damn it. You know, I got to go do it now. And, <laughs> and it's not because I didn't care about helping them be successful. It was the opposite. It was I would take on so much of that onto myself. Uh, and so that is actually a part of the reason why I ultimately wrote my No More Team drama book was mm-hmm. because I wanted to stop doing those. And I wanted to teach others how to get at some of that stuff themselves. And so a couple of years ago, I made the decision because it was really taking a toll that I wasn't doing those anymore. And I haven't done one in a while now. And uh, and I am better for it. I, yeah. I, there's that part of me that still kind of feels bad because I know that's still a problem that people out there have. And um, I now try to refer to, them to some other folks who can do that kind of work.
1: You know, this is a really interesting question uh, as a leader when you ask it. I would bet that you might get some responses that will surprise you because mm. people might present, you know, again, they're really good at something. Mm. You think that they are, you know, killing it at project management and blah, blah, blah. And then and they, they come love out doing and say, it.
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> and they come out and say, they absolutely hate it. Yes. And you're like, oh, holy crap, I should stop like,
0: Making them for that. Her,
1: yeah, yeah, like my default project person because I'm slowly killing them. Like that's, you know, listen whenever we ask these questions. Take notes.
0: Oh, that is such a great point. um uh, You could even tweak the question a little bit. W- what is something that other people think you love doing but you really don't? <laughs> You know, uh, right? Uh, that, that yeah. you could you could take that in a couple of different directions. That's a, a really great point, Alyssa. Uh, and that's why I, I like this question too, especially as the opposite of the question that we asked before, uh, because it forces people to maybe be a little bit vulnerable and to just yeah. to kind of say, in two ways, right? Sometimes it's hard for people to speak up and say, "I am good at this." And so you give people a chance to do that, but you're also giving them a chance to say, "Yes, I'm good at this. But I don't like it." I know, so, even yeah. though maybe you're enjoying the benefits, I'd love it if everybody would stop asking me. That is a whole different kind of conversation.
1: Yeah, 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 absolutely.
0: Good stuff. And that's the camaraderie question of the week. All right, friends, I am excited to announce that I have just put the finishing touches on a brand new keynote program. It is called Help Wanted, what you must do and never do again to find and keep devoted employees. Uh, and I've built this as a fun and funny program for conferences and meetings that define the new rules you must embrace to attract talent and spark commitment. And so during this program, I'm doing some fun things, Alyssa. I'm talking about why uh, pool tables and massages and espresso machines never mattered, right? All that stuff that people are like, well, they get that at Google. Uh And I'm talking about uh, why those people who say people just don't want to work anymore are actually going to be the, the first leaders to fail. And I'm talking about why trying to find the best person for the job is actually a broken strategy. So this is really designed to be an entertaining program that also gives a clear blueprint for drawing in and keeping the best employees for years to come. And so I just wanted to take a moment and share that with our audience. So if you're planning a conference or a meeting and you're interested in having me join you as a keynote speaker, just shoot an email over to hello at joe uh, And that will go to my colleague, Jamie, who will check date availability and get all the information and the details that you might need to decide if I'm a good fit. Oh, and I should say that the first half of twenty twenty two on my calendar is like ninety percent full. So we're mostly booking now for the fall and for twenty twenty three. And so again, that's hello at jomall.com. So reach out. I would love to come and be with you at your meeting. But apparently not to do all your staff conflict stuff, right? Not <laughs> <laughs> not that. Not that. But but to do the help wanted stuff. We can we can we can go at that hard problem in a really fun way. So that's what that program's about. And that brings us to Stop It. All right, Alyssa, I keep seeing a, a leadership mantra, a piece of leadership wisdom that I think disappeared for a while. It, it it went away, but then in the past couple of weeks, I have seen it pop up online in articles on LinkedIn several times, kind of all at once, like it's making a comeback And this is bad leadership advice. Here's the advice. As a leader, treat people the way you want to be treated. This is terrible leadership advice that needs to stop. And here's why. I am a white, 44-year-old, cisgendered, straight male. Do I really think that I would be successful as a leader by treating someone who is not like me the way that I would want to be treated, right? It doesn't make sense for me to to decide that, oh, well, this 22-year-old Puerto Rican woman who works for me should be treated the way that I want to be treated. That's absurd. That actually leads us into the problems that we are in now. The word that needs to be switched in that leadership advice is which word, Alyssa,
1: uh, I, I don't I don't know. I was I'm st- I'm sorry. <laughs> I was stuck in formulating my anger around the patriarchy and misogyny and all of the rest of it that's encapsulated in that single thing there. Sorry, I, my brain that that's a like a little peek into how my brain.
0: <laughs> it's OK. I totally put you on the spot. I was like, here comes the sir. <laughs>
1: And I totally missed because I was no, sitting okay. back here in my rage. You
0: were, And you were letting me go on my rant and that's okay. Well, the, the 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 quote that keeps getting put up everywhere is treat people the way that you want to be treated. And the word that needs to change is you. We don't want to treat people the way that you want to be treated. You've got to treat people the way that they want to be treated, which means that we go out and we build relationships and we figure out what kind of feedback do you want to get? And how do you want to get that feedback? And how do you thrive at work? And what are you looking for from your boss? And let me understand the conditions and the environment and the circumstances that lead you to be at your best. So, one of the ways, the other ways that this shows itself, is from leaders who say, "Well, I worked for a bad boss, and it taught me what not to do." Hmm. Uh, I used to facilitate a um, a training for third year residents who were moving into the fourth year of residency. So the organization would bring me in for a half-day preparing for leadership program. And I did this for like eight years in a row for this organization, and it it worked really well. It was really well received by both the residents and by the department, and we would just have these really interesting conversations, and I would move them through a series of of discussions and exercises that got them thinking about the leadership aspect of their role as a fourth-year resident. and. We ultimately would have all these conversations about the things that bothered them about what the fourth-year residents who had been leading them over the years, how they would show up. And so inevitably, somebody in every session would say, well, I definitely learned what not to do. And so I would explore that with folks a little bit and kind of talk about, well, you didn't like that, but does that mean that somebody else wouldn't? Does that mean that that style doesn't work for anybody? And so it would ultimately lead to this interesting exploration about how actually being a leader means flexing your style to meet people where they are and to figure out what works best for them and adjusting your approach from person to person based on the total sum of who they are. And so that's why this is bad leadership advice because you are who you are. That doesn't mean they are who you are. And so you can't treat them the way that you want to be treated. You need to treat them the way that you – but that they want to be treated.
1: I I think that's beautifully said, Joe. I – in terms of the 10,000-foot view, um, really what we're trying to help people understand is that when you put that in those really contrite – you know – I, I almost cultish way like I mean that that is like a whole thought pattern uh, you know of leadership is yeah. to treat people the like, way you know like um when you reduce leadership to that it is transactional point there point. is not the ability to build relationship because it's centered Around you, the leader. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when we expand our thinking and really bring authenticity of ourselves to the workplace in trying to authentically and real know what other people experience as support, as, um, you know, motivation, as reward, all of those other things, That's whenever we build relationship and it becomes a greater thing than just this transactional experience of do this work, get this result, bing, 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 bing.
0: And your point about it being almost cultish in a way is so spot on. We we fall in love with these kinds of fortune cookie wisdom ideas around leadership that we should question and, and that often don't provide clarity, right? We can um, share our favorite uh, mantras about leadership in various places, but that doesn't mean they give us a clear understanding of what we should do. And it doesn't mean they shouldn't be questioned. So when you see somebody post something like, hey, uh, like uh, leadership is about treating people the way you want to be treated. No, it's not. All right. You are not them. They are not you. Leadership requires a lot more complexity than that. And and we yeah. do a disservice to all those folks who are actually out there doing the work of trying to truly support and meet the needs of the people who work for them by reducing it to these kind of uh, one-off, oversimplified, uh, you know, uh, sayings that people put into a pretty background and share on Instagram.
1: You know, if it fits into this nice little box, start questioning the box that you're holding. Yeah.
0: Stop it. Well, we've come to the end of our episode, Boss Heroes. We hope you laughed. We hope you learned and maybe got re-energized in some way, as these are the goals that we strive for week after week. If we did that, if you laughed or you learned something or you got re-energized in some way, would you kindly share this podcast with others? We would love it if you posted about us with a link, of course, on your LinkedIn or Facebook page. For now, thanks for listening and good luck out there.
1: This show is sponsored by Joe Mall and Associates. Remember, commitment comes from better bosses. Visit joemall.com today.